1: Before we begin, this series features remarkable stories told by remarkable people. Some of the events they discuss and some of the words they use to describe their experiences can be quite colourful. This programme contains strong language and descriptions of an adult nature. And in particular, in this episode, there is discussion of sexual assault, which some listeners might find upsetting. Listener discretion
0: is advised. My mum said to me, come on, uh, dance, dance for me and your Auntie Eileen. Um, and, uh, and I used to throw myself around the room like a, like a whirling dervish, like, like a tiller girl, at the, the show that was on on Sunday evenings, the Sunday night at the London Palladium. And I danced and I danced and I danced to this record and they were laughing and clapping and I heard my mum say to my aunt, I think he's one of them. That was what they used to call people who were queer. they go, I think he's one of them. And inside, I froze. I thought, they know. They know I'm different. They know. And I wanted them to stop laughing. I wanted them to stop laughing. And then, of course, when the song was over and the dance was over, they hugged me and they kissed me. And I thought, it's OK, they'll forget. This is Michael Cashman.
1: Hi, Michael. How is lockdown treating you?
0: Well, my lockdown has been rather wonderful because it's reaffirmed that I am a natural recluse.
1: Michael, or should I say Lord Cashman, is a bit of a living legend, so you may already know who he is, but we'll get to that bit. Michael's got this fascinating way of seeing every event in his life, however horrible, as a step towards being the person he is today. It's an infectious positivity, an outlook which has taken him from the heart of the West End to the centre of a landmark British TV moment, from the front of campaign marches to the benches of the UK Parliament. It's easy to look at clever, funny, assured queer people like Michael as having always been effortlessly secure in their own identity. But what I've learned from hearing Michael's story and thinking about the way he tells it is that a thousand myriad accidents and influences went into shaping the confident man I'm meeting today. You're listening to Call Me Mother, a collection of conversations with queer elders. I'm Sean Bay. Each episode, I'll be talking with an LGBTQ trailblazer who has something important, interesting, or enlightening to say about what it means to be queer in the world today. By talking to older queer people, we want the stories in this series to create a sense of community across generational lines. By the end, our hope is that you have the language you need to grapple with new experiences by showing that you belong to a much broader history. This episode, Michael,
0: the actor turned activist.
1: Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood?
0: Growing up in the East End of London, uh, in the 1950s, into the 1960s, I was born in 1950. It was an incredible place to live. The excitement, the, the, the docks were alive. There was there were ships and tugs queuing up and down the river, barges, goods coming from all around the world and being uh, emptied into carts and horse and carts or onto the backs of strong men. We lived in this amazing council block uh, on, a, on an estate of about 2,000 people. Uh, and initially, uh, we had... The top floor of lots and lots of these flats and they're sharing a bed with my two brothers and my mum and dad my dad a dock and my mum uh, an early morning office cleaner and sometimes an all-night cleaner and, uh, and then we moved down onto the, the the first floor number 15 garford house you had winwood house jamaica house grenada house it gave you a flavor that we were close to the west india docks there was nowhere, uh, nowhere better to be alive and poor, because the sense of belonging, the sense of uh, a country rebuilding itself just after uh, the Second World War, interestingly, the pandemic that we in the United Kingdom have gone through, we will have to rebuild. There was poverty, but there was a sense of hope. And of course, for me, it was, a, it was a playground in which uh, I could grow up, but more importantly, hide the young boy that I found within myself, that young, we didn't have the term gay then, but that, that young gay man I knew at the earliest age, that age seven, eight. Uh, and I knew, I mean, I had a secret mate called Mickey, and I knew that I wanted to play not doctors and nurses, but doctors and doctors, uh, and got on with it but I had a a particularly nasty, dark attack from a a stranger. I remember I was running home down Narrow Street, where all the docks were, um, and I was racing ahead of my brothers. Uh, I think, great, I'm going to be home before them. And then as I approach our council estate, there was this man, he was about 18 years old, and he looked at me and I stopped and continued then walking slowly. And he approached and he smiled at me and he was nice and he asked me if I wanted to earn a shilling. Well, a shilling then, you could buy the world for a shilling. And I said yes and he looked like my dad. He looked, he was dressed like a docker. And he said, come and then. And I followed him across the road down this alleyway that led to the Thames. And I thought, ah, I know what he wants me to do. He wants me to break into a warehouse for him. And he got me up onto the wall. And then as we slipped down the other side of the wall, my breathing changed and I suddenly realized it was darker than I'd remembered. And I saw the lights from the the, uh, night watchman's office. And I suddenly wanted to go home.
1: The stranger sexually assaulted Michael. It was a pivotal moment in his childhood
0: that sent him down a certain path. Even if I found the language to describe it, I knew I couldn't tell anyone. And if people did believe me, then I would cause trouble and I would be the trouble. And so knowing I was different Of course, what you do when you're different is you either distract people from it by singing and dancing and making yourself uh, the joker, uh, or hiding away. I did the former. I was always putting on shows and singing and dancing.
1: This is where that incredible positivity that Michael has comes in. That terrible event from his childhood spurred Michael on to become a performer, After a school pantomime performance, he was picked up by a talent scout and thrust straight into the heart of the West End to star as Oliver.
0: I remember my dad, when my mum and dad were talking about it, he said, I don't want him to go into show business, it's full of queers. And in my head I went, I want to be there, I want to be there. And the amazing thing was, to get on that bus and go on that hour journey into the West End and get off the bus and walk up St. Martin's Lane to what was then called the New Theatre, the Noel Coward. And there was the billboard, Oliver, in its fourth year. And I used to walk through that stage door into a world where I belonged, where I could be myself. And uh, uh, and so I was rescued, really, by going into uh, show business, as we used to call it.
1: Was there any things that about that? having from a very young age learned to use performance to mask emotions or to mask concerns or worries, that there was anything about that that was difficult?
0: I don't know because I'm not very good at uh, uh, self-analysis, which is why I've I've hired uh, (laughs) counsellors and analysts in the past. But by the time I'd gone back home, I'd lost my accent. I'd had it knocked out of me at a stage school that I'd gone to. And I'd become this... um, little television upstart. So my brothers didn't know me. Certainly my friends that I'd, that I'd grown up with didn't know me. And And there was a period of isolation. I look back and I think about the childhood that was taken away from me. I know what I lost there in that respect. But what I gained was incredible. A world where I could belong, the world of theatre, where I could indulge in my fantasy and, and my imagination and not worry that people were looking at me when I looked at boys of my own age. And by that time I was fancying the boys a bit older, but, but it was a world where I belonged and, and belonging matters so much in our development.
1: What do you think your most glamorous story would be from that
0: time? I was playing Oliver at that time. So still, uh, still 12 years old. And, um you had to be collected by a parent, and my mum used to collect me, and we'd stroll through the West End and take our time. My dad would collect me, grab me by the arm, get me on the bus, get home before the pubs closed. But on this particular night, we stood out round the front of the theater, and there was a big couple of big black limousines and a man came out, and my dad said, uh, "Could he have his autograph um, and the man the American guy said. Yeah, sure. It was a man called Richard Nixon. And then Richard Nixon, my dad said, Well, you better have my son's autograph because he's just, you've just seen him play Oliver. And that was the night when I thought, Oh, there's something here that it's caught my dad. It's caught my dad. Um, That was it.
1: Yeah, no, that is quite a story, although it's, it's a shame it was that particular president.
0: <laughs> well, as, as, a, as an American friend of mine said, he said, God damn it, he said, Michael, that means you're in the Nixon Library because that son of a bitch never threw anything away.
1: In this newfound glamorous lifestyle, Michael also found a place to openly express his sexuality and get to know a rather different kind of nightlife to the straightforward boozers on the poplar docks his dad favoured.
0: The first club I went to was incredible. I can see it now, La Deuce on Darbley Street, Soho. We went down the stairs, entered this room, and there was music playing, I think it was San Francisco. We were all going to San Francisco. And there were boys of my own age, dancing cheek to cheek I was 15 and a half and I thought oh I'm in heaven and then discovered the other pubs and clubs but it was a life that you could indulge in but it was a life that you had to leave behind a nightlife that you had to leave as the sun came up if you exchanged phone numbers you would have to hide that phone number um Often in a pub or a a bar, a backroom bar, you would worry about somebody coming in from your other life. You manage these interconnecting, yet in the daytime, separate worlds.
2: If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN.
1: From those early days in the West End playing Oliver or Peter Pan, Michael's acting career continued to blossom. It brought him great success, took him around the world, and brought him to the pivotal moment of meeting his future husband,
0: Paul, I was up in um, Scarborough in in um, North Yorkshire, uh, and working with uh, the celebrated playwright and director uh, Alan Akebourne And Alan had commissioned me to write a play for him and then said, come on, come up, be a part of the acting company, but it's important to be around. And at the end of this wonderful season, wonderful season, Barbara Windsor invited uh, the artists in Scarborough to an end-of-season party at the Butlins Grand Hotel, and I, I wasn't sure I wanted to go. I thought, oh, okay, go. And and I went, and there I met this most amazing uh, young Bucklins redcoat. They were the entertainers. And uh, he made a fuss at me and made me feel important. And he did the cabaret. And that night we went back together. There was 13 years between us. Uh, he was 19. Uh, I was 32. and uh, And that was the start of a relationship that would last for 31 years. It was a relationship in which I pushed him away initially. I I thought, no, nobody nobody that stunning, that wonderful can love me. If you love me, you've got to hurt me and you've got to leave me. And his tenacity, the way Paul, 13 years younger than me, but infinitely more mature than me in so many ways, he worked at it and worked at it. But I believe honestly that it's the relationship that changed me for the good. Um, and without which I wouldn't now be the man that I am. And I believe me, if people don't like what they hear, I'm an infinitely better man than I used to be, much more rounded in dealing with so many things before that I couldn't. We still had to maintain uh, to the outside world that we were not lovers, because by then we had an age of consent of 21. Paul, when he came down to London, was 19. So both of us could have been arrested and imprisoned. So in the house that we moved into, a house that I, that I was building, and when he turned up, he said, my God, you said you had a house. This is a hole in the wall and a hole in the floor because we were rebuilding it. But in that two-bedroomed house, uh, one room uh, I had to be dressed up pretending it was his in case suddenly uh, there were unannounced family, unannounced guests
1: You might be best known for your role in EastEnders. How did you come on to take that part?
0: I never expected to go into EastEnders. It had been on the screen about eight months, and Paul and I loved it, loved it. It was a very different programme then. It was like watching a documentary. There were no lingering reactions, no music playing underneath. Music at the beginning, music at the end. The rest was acting, and Julia Smith, the producer, used to say, get on with it, and... When I was asked to go in to meet her and Tony Holland, the co-creator with her, they outlined the character and they said to me, this shows the time that we were living in, 1986, when AIDS and HIV uh, was, was right there in the middle of the, uh, the gay and bisexual community and indeed the lesbian community because of the, the support and absolute understanding in the trans community. Julia Smith said to me, that it's this gay part, but every time uh, we've been trying to cast it, we've been trying to cast a straight actor. Because it would have been better for a straight actor to say to the tabloids, "Uh, well, I'm just acting. Uh, She said, but every time we come to this part, we think of you, we want you to do it. One day on the way to the tube, I got to Mile End tube station, and there, banner headline, with my photograph looking back at me from the sun, East Benders depicting that two gays were going to get into the show and um, the tabloid reaction was savage, uh, the political reaction was savage and uh, uh, and misrepresented and there were, there were calls as to why are they putting a gay character in this show, uh, this family show, given that... AIDS is swirling around the country. Moral campaigners blew a gasket, but we got on with it.
1: The media reaction reached a fever pitch when Michael's character, Colin, shared an on-screen kiss with the character Barry on the show. It became a landmark moment in British TV, the first small-screen kiss between two gay men.
0: A woman wrote me a letter uh, and she said she'd watched the episode where I kissed Barry with her two sons, who I think were seven and nine, watched it on the Sunday afternoon. And she said, my, my eldest said to me, why is Colin kissing Barry? And she said, I said to them, well, as mummy loves daddy, so Colin loves Barry. And I thought, that's it. That is why the reaction against us is so savage because we're undermining the kind of agenda that they're setting.
1: Quite soon after, you also start to get involved in campaigning. And I'm wondering why that was and what caused the change for you to decide that you were going to be a campaigner out beyond your acting career?
0: The Conservative government, led by Margaret Thatcher, introduced during the middle of the AIDS crisis the first anti-lesbian and gay bisexual law in 100 years. And that is what got me... On to the campaign against section twenty eight as it was known and arguably uh, set me on a journey that took me to all of the other places and to where I am now. There was going to be a national march, and I didn't even tell paul and i I knew I had to be there, June Brown, who played dot got me the time off so I could go on this march and oh Mike, make sure you get back on time dear, don't get arrested, she said and getting involved in that campaign uh, I became an activist and some people at the BBC a gay actress said to me, Michael you've done too much think about your career and I said if I have to think about my career uh, because I'm doing the things that I'm doing now uh, then I'm not worried about that career
1: I'm 32. I was born in March 1988. So um Section 28 came into into force 2 months after I was born and lasted in England where I grew up until 2003 so pretty much my entire schooling up until the age of 15. Um would you be able to describe perhaps again to people younger than us who have no no sense what that what the effect of that law was and particularly at the time when it was first being discussed and touted as as being passed through parliament what your understanding of what it would do? would be
0: by effectively banning the so-called promotion inverted commas of homosexuality by a local authority, the ramifications were, were pretty wide uh, and I think designed in that way. It sent a shockwave through uh, schools where teachers were completely unsure what to do when faced with let's say biophobia, homophobia, transphobia in the school um, could they intervene? No. Uh, could they help educate? No.
1: This controversial law united a huge community of queer people to fight for their rights, and Michael found himself at the centre of it.
0: It was the straw that broke the camel's back. There we were trying to deal with AIDS and HIV. We should have been supported, not, not pushed down, not, not oppressed. Uh, and so we reacted with our allies... You know, we we must never forget the allies that came together. The brilliant march in London of 12,000 people that erupted in a riot outside uh, number 10 Downing Street. And there were no gates then at Downing Street. It was rumoured that Thatcher was inside and it it erupted into a a riot as people stormed uh, the barricades to go down Downing Street. The march of over 20,000 in Manchester was uplifting. I can still feel that sense, the excitement. In the campaign against Section 28, we won all of the arguments, but we lost the battle. And that was when I said to Ian, Ian McKellen, I said, we've got got to set up an organisation to make sure another Section 28 never happens again. Stonewall was born out of the battle for Section Twenty Eight and the defeat uh, of the campaign, and uh, uh, and we as actors we thought, well, we're going, we're going to need money to 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 fund this organisation. What do we do? So we put on the most amazing benefit. It was Paul's idea, uh, with me and Ian starring and uh, wonderful stars. Ian Charlson playing Greta, and uh, for one night only. And with that one night uh, in in nineteen eighty nine. We raised uh, over £30,000, a huge amount of money, and then Cameron McIntosh came back in and gave us another large amount of money, and we could hire our first executive director. Two days later, Ian phoned me, and I was at home, and he said, "Um," he said, are you sitting down? I said, no, he said, sit down. So I sat down, and he said, the National Theatre have just rung. They want us to do Bent at the National. And there we were, a few hundred yards along the Thames, from Westminster Parliament, where Margaret Thatcher had tried to prevent the promotion of homosexuality, and Ian McKellen and I, and the entire cast of Bent, were doing it every night at the Littleton Theatre. I think we know who won. Stonewall
1: is now the largest LGBT rights organisation in Europe, and founding it, launched Michael into a new political world. He became a prominent Labour figure, an MEP, and later a Labour Party peer in the House of Lords. But tragically, that moment of becoming Lord Cashman was overshadowed when Michael lost his husband Paul to cancer in 2014. What
0: you deal with with grief is the frustration of the physical absence. But but I do believe that once loved you are changed forever if somebody says oh i don't love you anymore well that's rubbish because love only exists in the present tense it's a continuum because once loved you're changed you know it's a great thing to be able if you've if you've had relationships where you think oh if they love me they have to hurt me and leave me and if if that if you turn that around and actually realize that loving and being loved changes you in an infinitely better way. It gets you through almost anything. When I went into the House of Lords, I was stunned by the warmth and the understanding and the generosity that was shown to me and to the fact that Paul had died. There's a lovely moment when I, uh, I'm i there being, they call it introduced, and I look up and, and there's members of my family and Ian McKellen and Paul O'Grady and June Brown and Barbara Windsor and I see the only face that isn't there and that's his and then I imagine it and on the video that they do they of do the introduction I suddenly beam this smile but if I could go back and find that little 7 year old who'd be jumping from barge to barge at Lyme House I'd go, oi, come here and I'd go, what you want? What you want, mister i say, you know what you can dream as much as you like but it's going to be better than that because you can become yourself and you can love someone like there's nothing else in the world to do. Now go off, go off Michael and get into trouble and enjoy yourself. That's what I'd say.
1: You've been listening to Call Me Mother, produced by Novel and supported by the Audio Content Fund. The series was presented by me, Sean Fay. It was produced and edited by Thomas Curry and Pippa Smith. The executive producers were Max O'Brien and Sean Glynn. Sound design and mixing by Joel Cox.